this series gives you a direct line to the pinnacle traders. We're covering everything from when the odds are initially posted to looking at how the market might react. This is the opening line. We're back again for the opening line and it's time for week seven. I can't really believe we're here already, but that's probably because time is flying by thanks to the man who's always here to help. It's Adam Chernoff. Looking forward to it. Let's get to the games. Good. You all set? Bets down? Ready to go? Four bets are in the account. Quiet week, but I am ready to go. Sweet. We'll jump straight into our first game then. We got Arizona Cardinals at the New York Giants, and the, the Giants opened up at minus three, and we're still on that number. We've seen plenty of action on the over-under as it's gone up from 48.5 to 50.5. Two wins on the spin for the Cardinals after a shaky start for Kyler Murray, and the Giants are their opposite end of the spectrum, coming off two straight big losses with the hype around Daniel Jones coming to an abrupt end. But all the attention for this one seems to be on the over-under, but what are you thinking for the game? It's an interesting game. I really like what Arizona is doing. Um, the last couple of weeks, they put together some fantastic game plans offensively. They were really struggling within the red zone. Uh, they couldn't get the ball in the in the end zone. They couldn't really seem to call the right plays for uh, moving the ball between the 20s with a lot of ease. Kyler Murray was finding a lot of success. And then they get into the red zone and they would just bog down with um, unusual run calls or they would be like second and three. Um, second and three from the three-yard line, and they would call a screen pass that was thrown two yards into the backfield. Uh, it was just all a giant mess. And then Kingsbury, the last about six quarters, has really gone and figured out what to call down there in the red zone. And it's worked out very well. And Arizona's looked like the team. I think a lot of people expected them to play to from an upside perspective. And there's a lot of promise after back-to-back victories. So interested to see... Uh, if they can sort of sustain that again this week against New York, I don't necessarily see a reason that they can't. Um, a lot of people really, the one knock that they're putting on them, while well, they've had success against the Cincinnati Bengals, and then they've had success against the New York Giants. But if you look at the overall rankings, either from a grading perspective or a numbers perspective, this Giants secondary, as worse, if not worse, than both of those secondaries they found success against, and so I don't know why that necessarily wouldn't continue this week. The one sort of thing that's keeping me off of the Arizona Cardinals overall, overall is that the Giants get back Saquon Barkley. That's an enormous boost for Daniel Jones, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago when he's without that run pass option in the backfield. That's sort of his crutch and has been throughout college. So we saw Barkley go out and his production dipped pretty significantly overall. They also get back Evan Ingram at tight end, who's upgraded to probable yesterday. That's an enormous boost against this Arizona Cardinals defense, which has had trouble defending tight ends the entire season. That's emerged as Daniel Jones' favorite target. So having Ingram back allows the Giants to be able to move the football a, a lot more at will with both of those guys. Really key to this offense, but more importantly, really key to Daniel Jones. So I think from the point spread perspective, three is a pretty, pretty good number Overall, the total has been bet up. It's understandable why. Um, obviously, with both of these defenses, probably Giants, I would say, still uh, one of the worst three secondaries in football. Arizona, you can put them in the bottom five. They do get Patrick <laughs> Peterson Bass back. That's an enormous boost. Um, but this total two rookie quarterbacks, difficult to really get there with the over. I still think really betting interest in this is going to take this number up from 50 and a half. I don't see any reason why it stops from getting to 52. 
uh, but not necessarily a side or total I want to be involved with. You mentioned Cliff Kingsbury then. You, you often mention the coach on this podcast and people might look at that improvement in performance through the lens of, of Kyler Murray. But for you, how how important is kind of analysing the coach and their play calling and stuff like that when you're when you're looking to bet on a match? For sure, it goes into it. Um, I'm not necessarily making that the main focus of my handicap just because your coach is going to make 65 to 75 decisions per game and to sort of try handicap each one of those or anticipate that each one of those is going to go a certain way can be a bit of a stretch many times because the game situation can change so quickly and then that completely warrants a different sort of set of play calls but you want to look at where uh, the overall tendencies are for a coach where, where the strengths are, where the struggles are from a neutral situation when the game is within seven points. And you can really learn a lot from how teams want to play the game uh, and knowing how they want to do it rather than just anticipating that they might play catch up uh, can really give you sort of a different mindset when it comes to handicapping a game. So it's certainly uh, a big part of what I do. So next up, we've got the Houston Texans at the Indianapolis Colts, and it's a this one's a close one. It opened as a pick'em. We're now on the Colts at minus one. The point the point has come off the over under from forty eight down to forty seven, but the market hasn't exactly been big on this one now. The Texans obviously had a big road win in Kansas City. The Colts themselves are coming off a bye week after beating the Chiefs in Week Five. I remember you saying the Colts implemented a good game plan to limit the Chiefs, and they're they're probably going to have to do something similar here. So do you think they can do it? Yeah, I think it's going to be a very good game plan, but it's probably going to be the opposite of what we saw against the Kansas City Chiefs. And what I mean by that was Patrick Mahomes specifically, and we can talk about him in a second, um, he really struggles for whatever reason, given his skill set against man coverage. And the Colts primarily a very high rate of zone defense on a very high, high rate of zone on defense. So to see them go almost 75% man coverage was really an example of one of the better defensive game plans we've seen all season. Deshaun Watson doesn't really have those struggles like Patrick Mahomes does against zone coverage. Uh, and he's got all his receivers healthy, which is a huge benefit. And given their skill sets and their speed uh, can be very effective against zone coverage, but where, Watson has struggled this season is when he's facing quarter defense, which means uh, that the defense will be playing with four man deep and then three under and sort of a zone man coverage underneath the four deep drop into zone coverage. And what that does is take away from the big double root combinations, which um, Deshaun Watson really likes to have for his explosive plays and forces everything underneath. And it's a difficult defense to play because you have to have the personnel to do it. Uh, but where uh, Watson has struggled this year was against the Carolina Panthers and against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Both of those teams have the personnel to run that type of defense. So I think the Colts, with Malik Hooker back, with Clayton Gathers back, with Darius Leonard back, three key pieces to their defense, they certainly have the pieces to run that type of defense. It's what they prefer to run more so than man. It just fits their personnel much better. Uh, so I think that they can definitely implement that and at least contain or limit this Houston offense. Not going to shut them down completely, uh, but it'll go a long way in containing what has become the third most explosive attack in terms of success rate 
on offense. <clears throat> As for the Colts on offense, I don't think it's necessarily a game where they just play keep away. They will be able to control this game up front with their line of scrimmage, run the football. That's what they want to do on offense. I think they find success doing that. I don't think it'll be nearly as sort of one-sided as the 41-minute time of possession effort they put forth against the Kansas City Chiefs. Initially, I thought one was a little bit short, was really anticipating this be two or two and a half. Um, the difference between one and two and a half from a number perspective, not really enough to get me involved on a game. Um, if I would have sort of been able to make this three or higher, would have had interest from the Colts. But for me, um, the under potentially a decent look, 47 is getting a little bit low. But if you did happen to get it early in the week, you made a very good wager. But from a side, just sort of sticking around right now on the sidelines and seeing if there's any more movement. Now we've got the Miami Dolphins at the Buffalo Bills and that theme of big handicaps from this season continues. Buffalo opened up at minus 16. They've now gone out half a point to minus 16.5. It's still a low total though. It's gone up from 39.5 to 40.5. So it seems like week to week we kind of talk about people taking Miami on these big spread marks and last week they nearly went one better and actually won against the Redskins. I think it was 16-17. to Fitzpatrick obviously did a good job when he came on, but the the Bills' defense is going to be very difficult to get past. So is it a week again where there can be a case made for Miami here, or is it going to be about how much Buffalo wins by? I think it's a pretty one-sided matchup. I'm actually quite interested in the, in the total on this game, looking over at 40 specifically. Uh, price isn't necessarily widely available now. You're looking at 40.5, which is really probably likely to be trending upwards. I think this is an interesting matchup that's kind of getting disregarded with a number of other big games on the board. Um, not a lot of people interested in when they see 17 and the Miami Dolphins and the Buffalo Bills playing in almost an instant stay away. And I think the total and the opportunity that comes with it is getting a little bit neglected. Uh, if you look at Ryan Fitzpatrick, who was announced as the starter, he hasn't been much more effective than Josh Rosen in terms of getting the ball in the end zone. But when it totaled this big, with a point spread this big, uh, you're really needing between 13 and 17 points from Miami, assuming everything plays together. That'll likely get you over the total. And what Fitzpatrick does well is at least he pushes the ball downfield, right? We've seen him uh, in about 60 snaps this season. And last week, for example, he averaged 10.1 air yards per 10. You round out all of those snaps that he's taken this season, and he's been over eight air yards per attempt. So despite facing some difficult defenses, played against the Patriots, which is the number one defense. Now he gets the Bills number three. In that performance against the Pats, he was at 7.8 air yards per attempt. Um, so all of these numbers, an enormous step up from Josh Rosen. You look last week, Rosen, 2.0 air yards per attempt, which is absolutely ridiculous. He actually had a negative completed air yards because the offense just became throw behind the line of scrimmage for like, like he was doing so 60% of plays. So pretty problematic when you're trying to score points with an offense that continuously throws negative pass plays. Um, you're not going to find much success. So when 65% of completions are behind the line of scrimmage, it's not going to work. But Fitzpatrick, uh, really the complete opposite when you're looking at those average yards per throw. And I think going up against this Buffalo Bills defense that's likely to be playing with a lead for the majority of the game, uh, all you really want from an over perspective is a quarterback that's willing to push the ball down the field. And when you're looking at potentially 25 to 35 pass attempts for Fitzpatrick, if he's willing to push the ball downfield, you don't need a high rate of those to find success. 
in order for the Dolphins to find points. So while I don't think that they come out and put up an enormous number, I think the prospect of them scoring 13 to 17 uh, is quite likely in this game with Fitzpatrick back. Team plays with uh, quite a bit of different energy when he's in the backfield. So I think it's promising that Fitzpatrick gets this start. He's familiar with Buffalo having played there. Um, this is a, a spot where Miami can put up likely enough to get this over. And then from the Bills' perspective, I have no issue of them scoring 28-plus points in this game. Uh, Miami, from a numbers perspective, ranks 30th or worst uh, in every single st- statistical category on defense that matters. They have the number 32nd-ranked defensive line and adjusted line yards. Buffalo Bills offensive line, number one. So the Bills can really everything up front at the line of scrimmage. John, Josh Allen, not going to be under pressure. That's really been a knock on him is the decision-making when he's under pressure. But the big thing to look at is throughout this, though he hasn't had a lot of starts just coming into the league last season, when he faces sort of bottom 15 defense, that's where he excels. When he faces top 15 defense, that's where he struggles. You look this year, Jets, New England, Tennessee, he has a 59% completion percentage with six interceptions and a 64 passer rating. Those were three top 15 defenses. You look at two games against the bottom 15, Cincinnati, New York, that 59% jumps to 65%, and his passer rating at 64 jumps to 90. This week, potentially, we see one of the worst cluster injuries uh, of the entire season with the likelihood of Xavier Howard, Chris Lamons, Rashad Jones, and Bobby McCain all being limited or non-participants in practice. If those four guys don't go, the Dolphins, will be replacing three of their four starting players in their secondary as well as their slot corner the backups behind them have been on field for just 11 percent of defensive snaps combined so that obviously opens up a ton of opportunity for the bills offense i think both teams actually moved the ball with some success miami's success obviously relative to this number Uh, i think the total's a little bit short at 40 uh, would still be interested at 40 and a half as well Right, so straight on to the Minnesota Vikings at the Detroit Lions and obviously an intriguing NFC North matchup. The Lions were initially listed as two-point favourites when the market opened and then they've swung. it's now swung in favour of the Vikings who are now minus two. The over-under has also gone up and down. It went up two points to 46. It's now down half a point to 43.5. I mean, it's an intriguing one to try and analyse. So what are you thinking here? It's a game that I'll be staying away from side and total. Um, as you mentioned, pretty significant movement here going from two-point favorites for the Detroit Lions to two-point favorites for the Minnesota Vikings. That four-point move, the number that it moved probably sounds more significant than the actual um, lines of probability across going from two to two. I'm not overly significant in terms of implied probability between what those two numbers mean. Uh, but a lot more significant than something like Houston-Indianapolis, which flip-flopped from a one-point favorite on either side and then Chargers-Tennessee side that we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes here. So, um, obviously, a lot of interest in the Minnesota Vikings uh, with their passing attack coming around like it has the last two weeks. I think that's really putting this team in a much different position than what we saw going into post-week four, uh, where that passing attack was struggling. Um, just because the ground game for Minnesota has become so effective. Uh, So when you're handicapping this against different opponents, uh, very difficult to make a case for this team not to somehow find success on the field. You look at the Detroit Lions, if there's somewhere that they do struggle defensively, it's at stopping the rush, 24th in rushing success rate. So if Minnesota is able to come in and do what they want, rushing the football, 
Um, you look at the success that they've had moving the football on the ground, um, opens up the pass game and really puts some pressure on the Detroit Lions, um, who are coming off the short week. Pretty disappointing loss on Monday Night Football against the Green Bay Packers. And I think a lot of the market is starting to doubt the coaching of the Detroit Lions. Consistently, game after game, um, bizarre decision-making. This team has a lot of upside, but that upside is not likely to ever be realized that the coaches continue making weird decisions. You, you think about going to a casino and you get like the blackjack basic strategy sort of cheat card that they pass out. Someone needs to give this entire coaching staff a cheat card of when to go for it on fourth down, when to punt, when to go for the touchdown instead of the field goal. It, it's pretty elementary, some of the mistakes are missing. And it ended up costing them a big game on Monday Night Football within the division. Um, don't necessarily like the prospect of Detroit moving the football consistently against the Minnesota Vikings defense, um, which has improved week over week the last three weeks. Uh, tough spot for Detroit. Um, but just from a number perspective, obviously big to be laying two with Minnesota, as small as that number may sound. But you look at what that sort of implies within the rankings of this division, and you're getting Minnesota almost three points better um, than the Green Bay Packers on a neutral field. Just from a power rating perspective, I think that just shows how inflated this number has become and how the opening number may have been a little bit more accurate. So not necessarily a big enough move for me to get involved with the Lions at home, uh, but certainly Vikings a little bit inflated here. So a good game to stay away from. And just kind of generally speaking and using this this game as an example, I guess, there's, there's probably people listening to this that have been on one side and the market's had some some quite dramatic movement. There's been no major injuries or anything like that. When you're when you're betting on NFL, do you you obviously need to trust what you're betting on? But when you see this kind of movement and you're new to it, how what would you say to someone that's kind of now worrying that thinking like, oh, I thought the right, the lines were the right play. Now what's happened to the market? I must be wrong. Like, is it just stick to your guns and go with it, or do you then kind of begin to to try and look at things differently? I uh, I think if you mean like look at things differently. Try to get out of your wager or potentially find another angle to sort of protect yourself. Uh, this isn't probably the number that you want to do that on. If you're looking at the difference between two on one side of the market and two on the other, um, you're really looking at a fair money line price that goes from about plus 133 minus 133 um, the other way. So it's not like it's a huge swing. Uh, obviously, if you take Minnesota plus two and now you're looking at minus two, Put yourself in a good situation. But uh, at the end of the day, it really comes down to the number and your timing. You're not going to get the right market timing on every single wager you placed. Um, but you, it's really just anticipating the money that's going to come in. I think given the perspective of both of these teams entering the week, uh, some of this line movement could have really easily been anticipated if you consider how the game on Sunday for the Vikings turned out and then how the game on Monday turned out for the Detroit Lions. So it's just a matter of timing. You, you, like you said, you have to trust your handicap. You have to trust the numbers that you're putting out. There are situations where you might see movement across the three or the seven, which are the key numbers right now from a point spread perspective, um, where you can potentially find different opportunities buying out or, or shooting for a middle. Um, but at this number, if you happen to be on Detroit minus two and you're looking at Minnesota minus two, um, given the, the price that it is within the market, there's not much you can do. You just have to stick with your wager. So now we've got the Oakland Raiders at the Green Bay Packers, and Green Bay were posted as six and a half point favourites when the odds first went up, and they're now down to minus five and a half. We've got a 46 and a half point over under on this one. It seems like the market isn't too confident on Green Bay because I think 
their, their form looks good on paper with those back-to-back wins, but they've both been pretty fortunate. I mean, the question here, I guess, is how do the Raiders go about causing the Packers problems? Yeah, I think the Packers could be considered a little bit of a fraudulent team at this record. For sure, their play has benefited from a lot of calls, a lot of timely plays, finding success. Box score-wise, they haven't necessarily put forth uh, the best numbers either with a couple games where they ended up coming away with victories but were outgained. So it's certainly a team we've now seen two weeks in a row see the market go against them. So not a lot of support for the Green Bay Packers despite the success they've had on the scoreboard overall. And, and this is another case here where the Raiders catching money thus far in the week at five and a half now. I don't anticipate that number holding. I think unless there's some serious injury concerns that come out of Oakland late in the week that we're unaware of, uh, this number is likely to continue pushing down towards a flat five or even four and a half. For the Oakland Raiders, it's really anyone that plays the Green Bay Packers. It's all about can you find success running the football? Mike Pettin has gone, in my opinion, a little bit too far overboard in abandoning run defense, continuously playing in dime formation, which means you have six defensive backs on the field. And when you're matching up six defensive backs in a running situation, it's inevitably going to be two of them matched up against offensive linemen, potentially, um, if not tight ends coming uh, off the line of scrimmage as well. And it just doesn't put the Green Bay Packers in a favorable position to stop the rush. You look at their rushing success rate, 32nd in the NFL the last three weeks, trending towards dead last as well. So it's not like just a couple of bad results have moved them there. This has been... The worst run-stopping unit in the NFL. The Oakland Raiders, 11th in rushing success rate on offense. But their passing game, a lot of that's an extension of the run as well. Very short passes, very quick passes for Derek Carr, 5th in passing success rate in the NFL. So I think the Raiders, from an offensive perspective, get a little bit disrespected. And the matchup is quite favorable for them as well. Um, Green Bay suffering a couple injuries on defense. Uh, the Raiders are continuously getting the ball out of Derek Carr's hand quickly. That negates a lot of this Green Bay Packers pass rush. Uh, I think the Raiders ultimately have success moving the football. At five and a half, it's not quite enough points to get me interested. Still don't like the fact uh, this is now the, the fourth road game in a row for the Oakland Raiders. A bit of a difficult situation despite having the bye. Um, hasn't necessarily benefited teams that much this season. Uh but overall, looking at the matchup, I think Oakland can have success moving the football. I think Green Bay manages to find a, a way to get a victory again. Um, they have Kansas City on deck without Patrick Mahomes being in that game. Uh, this game becomes a lot bigger for Green Bay to win, given their, their status within the NFC North and how important some of these wins come uh, with their three division games waiting at the end of the season for them. So it's really time for Green Bay to sort of pack on as many wins as possible. Uh, and I think this is a game that all of a sudden takes on a lot more meetings with the Mahomes injury, setting up a potential winnable spot for them next week as well. Yeah, and if we carry on that kind of thinking ahead viewpoint, I know you've you've taken the Packers on a Super Bowl futures bet and the performances haven't been great. They've been getting the results. How are you kind of sitting at the moment? Are you still confident? I wasn't expecting I, – I, I was very high on their defense coming into the season. And from a passing defense perspective, uh, sixth in passing success rate. They put together some fantastic numbers. But a little bit concerned with their overall play calling. Uh, like I said, Mike Pettin is just showing no interest to stop the rush. And I think that that opens up a pretty easy game plan for opponents 
um, just to find some success moving the football. Uh, it just gives them an easy out, and it really opens up the explosive plays for opponents. You look at the Packers defensively, 24th in explosive passing defense, 25th in explosive rushing defense. So they're consistently giving up big plays. Sitting 5-1 and one right now in the division, certainly great for making the playoffs and futures odds altogether. Uh, but like I said, their schedule coming up, a little bit concerning. If they're able to get a win here and then take advantage of the Chiefs without Patrick Mahomes, that gets them to seven wins. Uh, but they've got some very tough games coming up with the Panthers on the road at the 49ers. Uh, then they have the Bears, Vikings, and Lions within the division to finish off the season. The Vikings and the Lions both on the road. Um, so if those two teams are able to keep pace, then those two games at the end of the season really factor into ultimately deciding this future and really presenting some opportunity to sort of work against it in the playoffs to secure some profit. So this game this week, as well as the Chiefs next week, if they can get both of those and get to seven wins, uh, they just have to find the way really to get two or even three wins the rest of the way to secure their spot in the playoffs. If both of these games go the other way, uh, then it's an awfully difficult road to finish the season for the Green Bay Packers. So big two, big two games here on deck for Green Bay. Right, so now we've got the Jacksonville Jaguars at the Cincinnati Bengals, and Jack- Jacksonville opened up at a three-and-a-half-point favourite for this one, and the, the over-under was 44-and-a-half. The Jaguars have now moved out to minus four, with a point coming off the over-under at 43-and-a-half. So, I mean, Jacksonville, they're putting a poor, poor performance against the, against the Saints. Your man Gardner Minshew really struggled. The Bengals lost again, went down 23-17 to the Ravens. I think for anyone betting on Jacksonville here, it's not really going to be about Minshew. It's it's how bad the Bengals are against the run, and they'll be hoping on a big game from Fournette. So do you think that's what we're going to see unfold? And certainly what the Jacksonville Jaguars are going to try. I don't see why the Jags wouldn't necessarily have success on both sides of the football. As you mentioned, rushing the football certainly going to be able to find advantages against the Cincinnati Bengals. They look just in completely hopeless defending the Baltimore Ravens. And while the Ravens rushing attack, obviously a lot more dynamic um, with Lamar Jackson at the quarterback position, able to sort of present a look that's a bit unique for the Bengals. But the Jacksonville Jaguars, like they want to run the football. That's the identity of this team. That's what they want to do. And I think they're going to certainly find success against what's turning out to be a very undisciplined defense. Jalen Ramsey departs the Jacksonville Jaguars, goes to L.A. I think that changes the makeup of this defense overall. He hasn't been playing in the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's it's great that they were able to cut ties with him and move on. But now it it really isolates A.J. Bouye. And it puts a lot of focus on the rush defense as well. Um, you look at the Jacksonville Jaguars, 30th in rushing defensive success rate this year. So uh, this is potentially the first time all season where the Bengals can get Joe Mixon involved. They're throwing the football 70% of plays, which I think is ultimately too high for this offensive attack. Um, Zach Taylor's been relentless with the pass, and it's put them in some bad situations early in the game where they're quickly going three and out, um, putting a lot of stress on this defense. So if Cincinnati's able to find uh, a little more success on the ground, which I think they can using Mixon, then they can keep this competitive. But overall, uh, in my opinion, the least bettable game on the card this week. So now we've got the LA Rams at the Atlanta Falcons. We had the Rams at minus three and a half initially, and they're now just a flat three. No surprise to see a big over-under, and the market was actually keen on it here. We started at 53 and a half, um, but the traders are now moved up to 54 and a half. And as I said, money's still coming in on the over. 
It was a really poor performance from the Rams last week and the Falcons didn't really do much better. And I think both teams have they've been pretty poor all season, really. So the question is, has your man Jared Goff got it in him to help his team get the win? And obviously that Jalen Ramsey trade, how important might that be? I think that it's going to potentially be important later in the season. Not necessarily a big impact this week. And the reason being, um, just 14 days ago, we go back two weeks, this Rams starting secondary was Aqib Talib, Marcus Peters, John Johnson, and Eric Weddle. Three of those guys are gone, either on the IR or off of the roster. And the only one left behind is Eric Weddle. So the secondary, assuming that Ramsey plays, he did practice for the first time on Thursday. Sean McVay said he'll have to judge to see how well he integrates within the off- or within the defense to make a decision. Um, but it looks like it's going to be for the secondary Jalen Ramsey, Taylor Rapp, Troy Hill, and Eric Weddle. And you put those four names next to the previous four names, and it's an enormous step down for the L.A. Rams. Even though Ramsey's in, how effective he's going to be, still a mystery. You have to remember this guy's missed the last couple of games as it is, so not necessarily in-game shape overall. I do think he finds the field. I do think he's matched up with Julio Jones for the majority of the game. Uh, but you look at this Atlanta Falcons passing offense. I think it's one of the more de- disrespected units in the entire league. Currently, number three in passing success rate. There's been no issue for this team moving the football. And when you look from a game planning perspective, Sean McVay still is one of the best game planners in the NFL. But this year, it's been a struggle for him. Uh, he hasn't been able to put together those great game plans that we're sort of accustomed to him doing. And you look at the LA Rams defensively, this was a unit that was number one after the first four weeks in passing success rate defense. Now we're going into week seven. They've dropped all the way to 25th. It's an enormous fall for the LA Rams defense. And now they're without three of their starting secondary players. Again, Marcus Peters, gone from the roster, the other two on IR. So it's a huge shift for them. And where it becomes a bit problematic is they can't really just play a a basic offense in this game. The Atlanta Falcons, they have four different personnel packages offensively that they use on at least 15% of snaps. So it's a very difficult offense to match up against. And they like to push the ball deep, 8.4 yards attempt to go along with that success rate. So against a defense that's trending in the worst direction possible at a very high rate, Um, The Falcons are likely to have a lot of success moving the football. And then that puts pressure on Jared Goff. And if you're betting on the L.A. Rams, you never want there to be pressure on Jared Goff from a game perspective or from a pass rush perspective. And I think the Atlanta Falcons, against this offensive line, which lost another starter, you're looking at the most inexperienced interior offensive line in the NFL, they're facing a pass rush that I think can find some success for the Atlanta Falcons. Um, It was a sort of a high spot for the Falcons in terms of grading for the first three weeks of the season. And while we haven't seen them generate a lot of contact on the quarterback, the pressure has been pretty consistent. And this is by far the worst offensive line that the Falcons will face this entire year. So I think that pass rush finds success. And then looking on the end, true font and Wilson, two corners for the Atlanta Falcons potentially returning to this game. Um, They're going to get a couple other guys back on the defensive side of the football as well. So if they're able to generate pressure up front, um, Todd Gurley and Malcolm Brown. Gurley looks like he's going to be ready to go, but Malcolm Brown, a key running back in pass protection, uh, doesn't look like he's going to find the field. Um, So that really puts a little bit more pressure on Jared Goff, not only from a lack of run game, but from a lack of pass protection as well. So 
really a spot where I think the Falcons getting a little bit disrespected could be uh, a game where we see the Rams ultimately hit rock bottom and then potentially set up a decent spot to back them next week against the Cincinnati Bengals, who um, equally as poor in the secondary as the Atlanta Falcons, but obviously playing on the road with Goff at home, very different splits. Uh, I would look to the Falcons here at plus three. I don't think that number holds. I think ultimately we see Atlanta money bring it down to two and a half or less, and the Falcons have a chance to win this game outright. So our next game is the San Francisco 49ers at the Washington Redskins, and the handicap on this one is the 49ers minus 10. That's the market opened on, and the over-under has dropped a point and a half from 42.5 down to 41. So, I mean, the 49ers are obviously getting it done this season. It was another win in week six. Season moved to 5-0. and I think that's just them and the Patriots now that have got perfect records. It should be a fairly routine victory. The Redskins only just scraped past what is the worst team in the league to get their first win last week. The question, I guess, is how many points are the 49ers good for in this one? I don't know if they're necessarily good for as many points as the market is making them out to be. I think that uh, with the total of 41 and a point spread of 10, naturally the market isn't saying that there's going to be a ton of points in this one altogether. I'm curious to see how long this price point on the San Francisco 49ers lasts. I have them in my power ratings, which will have like a base rating, but then I also put a range on how high the team can play up to in the best case scenario. And I have the 49ers pushing the top of their range, if not exceeding it at every single level. So I'm at a bit of a a bit of a tough point where I'm not necessarily buying into the hype on the 49ers. Um, they have had a lot of success on both sides of the football. Uh, they put up some fantastic numbers. I'll always sort of point to the schedule and weight those numbers. And they're overachieving enough offensively that some of those numbers against a very weak schedule are, in fact, indicative of very good performance. Uh, but I do think that this team still ultimately is playing well above what their true price point is. And now we're seeing them lay 10 points on the road at the Washington Redskins. Um, I'm not interested in backing the Redskins, but it's just an example of another favorable opponent that the San Francisco 49ers have in their way. And uh, I think looking at the Washington Redskins defense, you can really attack them. Either way, they're equally as poor in the secondary as they are up front in their front seven. And San Francisco's shown a lot of promise wanting to run the football. Sixth in rushing success rate, highest overall run rate in the NFL. And I don't think the Washington Redskins can necessarily stop them. But where my concern lies for anyone looking to back the 49ers is if the Washington Redskins are able to put together a game plan against the most obvious point of attack for the 49ers, That puts a little bit of pressure on Jimmy Garoppolo. We haven't had to see him sort of come over and take over a game when need be. He's been in a very very favorable position all five of his starts so far this season. Um, If the Redskins can just sort of contain the rush and prevent those explosive plays, uh, I think the 10 points ultimately becomes pretty big for San Francisco laying on the road. But not a game I want to step into. I do think under money continues to come into the market. Callahan, new coach for the Washington Redskins, loves to loves to run the football as well. So, like a very low variance game, but I I think that this number is as high as it could possibly be for the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, I liked what I saw on your Twitter with the the power ranking scale type thing. Are we going to see more of that? We might just see an article published on Pinnacle in, in about the next week. 
Next up, we've got the LA Chargers at the Tennessee Titans. I think you mentioned earlier there's some, some interesting movement here. Uh, Tennessee, I mean, handicap-wise, Tennessee are minus two after an op- opening up at minus one, but it's the over-under that's been bumped up two and a half points from 38 and a half to 41. Um, both teams here are coming in into week seven off the back of really poor performances. The Titans were shut out by the Broncos. The Chargers were beaten by the Steelers. Steelers using their third-string quarterback. Um I, I wouldn't have thought many people were overly excited about this game, but there's there certainly seems to be something that the betters want to get involved in. So what are you thinking? So a, a bit of a valuable lesson potentially here for people listening. There's a lot of talk, especially um, within the NFL, of early in the week, uh, betters of influence potentially setting up a number. And this game, for those watching an odds comparison screen on Monday morning, the, the L.A. Chargers took on a what appeared to be a ton of money for those that have been experienced with the screen. Uh, at some other bookmakers within the market, uh, they opened minus one and a half, minus two and a half even. And the Chargers were bet all the way to a two-point favorite. So we saw at some books a three and a half to a four-point movement on this side. And the total as well went from 40 and a half at open all the way down to 38 and a half. And what was interesting about this movement was not only where it originated, but there was a, a pretty consistent move down before uh, Pinnacle was on the board, before a lot of the other bookmakers that catered to bigger players were on the board. And so this move happened at books which don't necessarily dictate the market. And then the Pinnacle price hit, specifically with the total um, at 38 and a half, and that was an instant adjustment for everyone else on the board. From the side, uh, Pinnacle opened minus one. This game at the time where a lot of this movement was taking place and went to Chargers minus one and a half. Uh, as soon as one hit the board at Pinnacle, we saw that number snap back, and now we're seeing it two and a half in favor of the Tennessee Titans. So when you talk about setting up a number, uh, I think a lot of people might look at the line movement at some of the bookmakers. Uh, which cater to more um, sort of commercial and recreational clientele. And they're going to point to this potentially being a setup. I don't think that was the case at all. Uh, I think this was just an example of how some other bookmakers with lower limits uh, see their prices influenced a lot more early in the week. And then when Pinnacle opens up the number, uh, the market's quick to react to that number. We saw a perfect example of that with the total with the rest of the market adjusting to that number upon open from the traders. So uh, an interesting sort of fake setup in many ways that people may mistake for just uh, early liability that some other bookmakers were not able to balance and just a snap reaction to that from a big movement perspective. But getting back more to the game, now that we sort of put that out of the picture, uh, it's an extremely difficult game to bet. Tennessee finally putting Marcus Mariota on the bench. I think that's a benefit for the Titans going forward, but it's just a matter of where do they find success moving the football. They have been very inconsistent, not only in their play calling, uh, but really establishing some sort of identity that the team wants. 31st in passing success rate, 21st in rushing success rate. A bit unusual for the Titans, who at least the last couple of years have been sort of reliant on that ground game. Very little from explosive plays as well offensively. The Chargers now for the sixth consecutive week have put a player on the injured reserve, continuously spotting 
opponents early leads let's see how the chargers handle the first quarter in this game if they're able to stay competitive um, defensively the chargers have been extremely disappointing offensively we've seen sort of hunter henry emerge as philip rivers favorite target certainly a matchup issue for the tennessee titans um, on offense that rivers may be able to find success through but uh, it's just another one of these games that's extremely unbettable this week so we'll move on to the Baltimore Ravens at the Seattle Seahawks. And Seattle are minus four to start with. They're now minus three. A fairly big total here. It's currently sitting on 49 after opening at 49 and a half. So we said a lot about teams coming off the back of poor performances already. But these are actually two teams that are probably going to be pretty happy with their season so, so far. Seattle, I mean, it's notoriously a hard place to go. There's some, I'll call it debatable talk about Russell Wilson putting in MVP potential performances. Um Seems like there's a lot to like about Seattle, but the the market doesn't seem to think so. So I'm curious to see what you think. Are you in agreement with the market here, or are you are you on Seattle? I am. I think Seattle, another one of those teams that's playing to about as as high of their potential as possible. As you mentioned, Russell Wilson, absolutely number one as the MVP candidate at the moment, and this team is entirely about him. Um, they, for whatever reason. And it's a common theme with Seattle. Um, despite seeing that performance from Russell Wilson week after week after week, they still want to run the football more than they pass it. And this passing attack for the Seattle Seahawks, number two in passing success rate, 31 explosive plays, um, 9.3 yards per attempt. They're passing deep. They're finding success. Like It's the most dynamic passing attack from a numbers perspective in the NFL right now. And, I don't know how much of that is the fact that Seattle wants to run the football more than 50% of the time, potentially creating opportunities. Um, some stats and analysis will point to it not necessarily it mattering how effective the rushing game is in terms of the passing game. But you look at Seattle in a neutral game state with, with games within seven points, they're running the football 55% of plays. So despite having this enormous advantage, I don't think Seattle's nearly exploiting it to the extent that they could. And it really becomes a question of how sustainable is this play when all of the pressures on Russell Wilson continuously converting high leverage third down situations in the third and fourth quarter. It's just they're playing at a rate that we've almost become used to from Seattle. But when you're being objective and looking from a numbers perspective, uh, it's difficult to anticipate this continuing week to week. Baltimore, Jimmy Smith, uh, was back to practice. He's not going to play. We've talked here on the podcast how important he is to the secondary and this defense. But the addition of Marcus Peters, I think, goes a long way for Baltimore to sort of bolster that secondary. Um, this is a unit that's been extremely poor from a grading perspective in past coverage, but their numbers suggest they're a little bit better than those grades look. Uh, 13th in passing success rate, 12th in rushing success rate, despite facing a fairly favorable schedule nonetheless. Um, but if Seattle comes out and tries to run the football 55% of time, it's potential where the Baltimore Ravens uh, can key in on that and force Russell Wilson into these third down situations. A lot of interest has been put on the over. Uh, when you couple in all of that with the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens, Greg Roman, sort of finally taking this team the direction he wants after a couple of passing performances, uh, the Ravens pass rate has dropped to the third lowest overall. A league low at 45% pass plays in neutral game state situations. So you're looking at two teams that fundamentally want to run the football. If they both find just a little bit of success doing so early in the game, 
Uh, it's likely we could see runs take over this game. That reduces the variance. That reduces the scoring opportunities. And despite both of these quarterbacks being mobile and being able to throw the football deep with success, if they're consistently put in third down situations that are become more and more high leverage as the game goes on, if you're looking at a total as high as 49 and a half, you need a lot to go right consistently throughout the game to get there. So um, agree that the Baltimore Ravens with that movement down from four to three, um, but don't necessarily agree with this total going up. I think ultimately this closes below 49, potential for some weather as well, a little bit of rain in Seattle. Uh, just a, a side that I would, I would probably stay away from in the total if I had to get involved, I'd be looking under. And with the, the Seahawks, as you said, they're kind of maxing out in terms of their performance. Is it is what we're seeing from Wilson s- sustainable? Do you think when it comes to settling those MVP markets that he's still going to be part of the debate? I, I think for the MVP market, he absolutely has to be a part of the debate. I think from just looking at the betting market overall, um, there's a time where play on the field and perception within the market either match each other or the perception exceeds the play on the field. And when you consider how Russell Wilson has been finding his success, um, if he gets just the right matchup at the right time, uh, it's a spot where there's a ton of value going against Seattle because much like San Francisco, this is a Seahawks team that we're really seeing at the maximum of their price point. They're being stretched to the fullest extent. So it, it really becomes matchup dependent. And when, things line up there there's potentially a ton of value to oppose the seattle seahawks i don't think this is the week um, but i do think that it's coming in the near future just looking at the schedule so our next game is the new orleans saints the chicago bears and no surprise here really to see some some appetite on the under for the totals um maybe not as much as people might have thought it's gone from 39 and a half down to 38 and a half but it is still trending downwards half a point has come off the bears they were four point favorites but they're now just three and a half I think a lot of people thought the Saints were going to struggle when Breeze got injured. They they seem to be managing to get the win. They're sitting on a 5-1 and one record. The Bears have been a bit of a disappointment. I mean, solid as ever at the back or on, on defence, but not, not offering much in offence. Still an interesting matchup, I guess. So how do you break this one down? There's, there's a lot of talk about the Saints being the best team in the NFC. And that's sort of a combination of from what I've seen anyway, when it's being talked about in the media, it's a combination of what this team will look like when Drew Brees returns. And they're sort of trying to piece together the fact that the downgrade from Brees to Bridgewater was enormous and Bridgewater was to sustain success and win these games. And now Brees is going to come back and step in and this team is just going to be um, instantly the best in the NFC. I think they've been forced, to say the least, to win a lot of these games with Bridgewater at quarterback. One of them, the first one at Seattle, uh, we talked about it a lot. They were outgained by, I believe it was about 1.7, 1.8 yards per play. They beat the Cowboys without scoring a touchdown. They beat the Jaguars by scoring 13 points, and they ended up covering that game comfortably. Uh, I think they won by six or seven. Uh, so despite Teddy Bridgewater really being about as simple and basic of a quarterback as we've seen coupled with the game planning that's been put together, the Saints have found success all of the weeks that he started. And this is really the first matchup where he gets an extremely difficult defensive matchup. Chicago Bears can generate a ton of pressure. They can play very tight coverage. And another sort of tip 
for people listening, when you're looking at the injury report, it's important to look at the transaction report as well. And obviously the big name for the New Orleans Saints is Alvin Kamara on the injury report, key running back, enormous part of this offense. Uh, uh, the Saints went and signed a free agent running back on Tuesday. So this injury has been lingering now for two weeks. When you see someone added at a position, especially a skill position like running back, uh, when you see someone added like that early in the week, it's usually an indication of what's to come from that player at practice later in the week, the player in question or the player injured. Uh, we've seen Kamara not practice Wednesday, not practice Thursday. Everything suggested he will not practice on Friday. That means he's very unlikely to be playing in this game on Sunday. Jared Cook, a key tight end in the same situation. And then Traquan Smith, another receiver, in the same position as well. So now, not only does Teddy Bridgewater go into Chicago for his most difficult matchup against his defense, he's likely to do so without his key running back, uh, without his tight end, and without a secondary receiver as well. So that becomes uh, pretty enormous from a game planning perspective, just because it simplifies everything for Chicago so much. Some of the one of the knock on New Orleans coming into the season was Drew Brees has this sort of dying arm, and they're extremely dependent on Michael Thomas. Well, if Alvin Kamara, who's emerged as sort of that player that defenses have to respect and can't cheat covering Thomas, if Kamara's not in the backfield, if Cook isn't in a tight end, well, then, then Chicago defense, really the game plan becomes keying in on Michael Thomas. Teddy Bridgewater has had three games so far in these starts where he's averaged less than 5.5 air yards per attempt. And he had two games where he averaged less than 3.5 completed air yards per attempt. So his passing and what he's willing to do at the line of scrimmage, extremely simplistic. Without Kamara, he's going to be really tested to push the ball into tight windows. Doesn't necessarily have to throw deep, but it just makes coverage so much easier for Chicago, who comes into this game two weeks to prepare off of the bye after their London game. I think this point spread for a lot of people is a bit shocking seeing the Bears as three-and-a-half-point favorites for a team in New Orleans that they're being told in the media is one of the best in the league. So I think this is a snap bet for many people back in New Orleans saying that there's no way the Bears are, from what this number suggests, equal to the Saints. I think this matchup specifically, the Bears are better than the Saints. So seeing three-and-a-half, um, certainly a number I'm interested in putting my account already is in there. Um, I've got Chicago for a bit at minus three. Also have them at three and a half as well. Yes, you were quite quite clear in the wording there, Adam, that the, the media thinks the New Orleans Saints are one of the best teams. Is that an opinion not, you're not too fond of or you don't believe in? I don't myself. Um, I think that they're, they're emerging as one of the better teams in the NFC, but I'm not willing to put them at the top of the NFC, even with Drew Brees back. Um, I still think that this is a, a team that, has has trouble defending the pass in the secondary, which is ultimately going to burn them come January um, 22nd in passing success rate. And they've been able to mask that for a number of weeks as well. So um, I think when Breeze comes back, that's obviously going to be a, a huge upgrade from Teddy Bridgewater. Um, but his arm, we saw in week one, and I think we forget how poor he looked in week one. He was able to engineer that comeback, but he was underthrowing a ton of his receivers um, he was not having nearly the success throwing the football deep as we're used to him seeing. Uh, there was a deep pass to Ted Ginn. He had to stop his route completely. 
Uh, I don't think that this Saints team is going to be deserving of the price point that they're not only getting this week, but they will get consistently once Breeze comes back. Right, so the next one is Philadelphia Eagles at the Dallas Cowboys. And this one, it's, I mean, it's a bookmaker's dream, isn't it? Um, the market seemed pretty stable at Dallas minus three. It has recently dropped to minus two and a half, though, which is obviously quite important. The over-under of 48.5 is, is where it opened. So two teams that we know that the market likes to bet on. They're facing each other in a big divisional matchup. We're, we're obviously expecting more money to come in later on. Seems that the traders are doing an okay job of it at the moment. A um, lot of hype around the Cowboys early on. Suffered a bit of a fall from grace. I think it's three straight losses now. They went down to your boys, the Jets, obviously. Um, the Eagles, they've, they haven't been too great either. I think Doug Peterson came out and he's pretty much guaranteeing a win for the Eagles, apparently. So do you agree with that? I think that this side here is Philadelphia or nothing for sure. And just looking at the Cowboys injury report, maybe enough of a handicap overall. Byron Jones, uh, key cornerback, questionable at best. Anthony Brown, defensive back. Um, questionable at best. Two key pieces likely missing from the secondary against this Philadelphia Eagles passing attack. You have Amari Cooper, extremely vital to this offense and the success of Dak Prescott. He's looking doubtful at best for the game. Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins on the offensive line, both likely out. Those are two key pieces. And then Randall Cobb has emerged as questionable on the injury report as well. So you're looking at six key players on both sides of the football for the Dallas Cowboys likely to miss this game. Key divisional matchup with the winner of this one, obviously getting into the lead in the NFC East. I think from the side perspective, seeing this come off of the three makes a lot of sense. I think the Philadelphia Eagles, despite playing to um, what's likely to be the NFC lead, NFC East lead after this game, have been one of the more underachieving teams on the year. I think the upside with the Eagles going forward is absolutely enormous. Still a lot of injuries for them to deal with as well in this game. Still missing Deshaun Jackson. Still missing four cornerbacks and defensive backs on their roster as well. Um, So this is a team that's far from healthy, far in a favorable position in many of these games, but they've continued to find ways to win and put themselves likely in the division lead after this game on Sunday. So we talked about a couple teams earlier with teams that are sort of exceeding their price point. I think the Philadelphia Eagles are far from realizing what not only their average price point should be, but what their maximum price point could be as well. So very bullish on the Eagles going forward. Have to think that they're the look here on the side. Um, it's interesting to see, like, if from the number perspective, it's just short overall um, for the Philadelphia Eagles. I think this is a game that's much better priced considering the injuries right around the pick I don't think it's a too far of a stretch to think that we might potentially get there with the amount of money that's going to come in on the Eagles once a lot of these injuries for the Dallas Cowboys are ruled as officially out. Um, what interests me a little bit is the total in this game. Um, I took a position early in the week on the over. Um, I was looking at 48 and a half. It got as high as 49 and a half when there was optimism that Cooper and Deshaun Jackson both potentially could return. Cooper not looking like he's going to play, so that's obviously a blow to the Cowboys. Um, Jackson still it, it's trending towards unlikely. Uh, but there still is promise, much more optimism for him than Cooper. But should he return, that's obviously an enormous boost for the Eagles. But I think with all of the injuries in the secondary for both of these teams, 
that's really the story. Um, receivers are going to be far from healthy for both sides. Uh, but with all these missing names in the secondary, I think both of these teams have success throwing the football. So uh, some value on the over here, for sure, 48 and a half. Right, last but not least, the New England Patriots at the New York Jets, and it's another one where we haven't seen too much movement. The Patriots still on the minus 10 they opened at. The over-under has gone up a touch to 43.5. Patriots, top-rate defense in the league, one of the best offenses in the league. They're 6-0, they just look unstoppable. There are, I guess, some positive for the Jets. They've got Sam Darnold back, and they've got their first win of the season, so their confidence is going to be high. I'm sure it is as a Jets fan. Um, as a better, what are your thoughts on this one? And, well, this is not the fan in me coming through, but this is by far the most difficult matchup for the Patriots of this entire season. You look at the opposing backs that they've faced so far. They got Ben Roethlisberger, who's obviously injured, but they got him opening night in Sunday, week one. Sunday Opening Sunday night, Fox for a week one. Terrible situation for any quarterback. Um, that was sort of the previous benchmark. And you look at the other quarterbacks the Patriots have had success against. They got a combination of Fitzpatrick and Rosen in week two, Luke Falk back up third string in week three, Josh Allen in week four. Then they get Colt McCoy, who's, I mean, is he second third string? Is he third string? Whatever he might be within that carousel of quarterbacks in Washington week four. And then they get Daniel Jones, a rookie, making his start on a short week in Foxborough for the first time on Thursday night football a week ago. And now uh, they have to go on the road into MetLife Stadium. They get Sam Darnold and the New York Jets. From a numbers perspective, obviously this is a huge mismatch. Um, Everywhere you look, the numbers are going to favor the New England Patriots in this game. And a lot of the Jets numbers obviously skewed by a combination of Luke Falk and Sam Darnold and... Um, mixed like there were injuries to both sides of the football for the Jets so I don't think the numbers necessarily represent this Jets team overall and what we'll see going forward um, enormous game for New York here obviously but what interests me from that Cowboys game aside from the result was just the overall energy we saw in the team I mean they were playing like a team I haven't seen the Jets look like since 2011 when they went into when they hosted the the Patriots and ended up getting that win in the playoffs, um, it's really the first time I've seen a team look like this in about eight or nine years, and it's really promising for the Jets. Sam Darnold looked fantastic in the pocket, moving around, finding his receivers. Um, that was enormous, um, just to get him back and see the team take around him. Uh, interest to see the total go up, forty three and a half to forty four. It got as low as forty two and a half. Um, just shortly after open, uh, you would look at some of these defensive numbers that would sort of point to a lower scoring game. Uh, but to see this move, I think that's quite telling of the game that we're going to see. I certainly agree with that move to the over. I think the offense on both sides of the ball here are going to find success for New England and the Jets. Um, really not much from a handicapping perspective, aside from this number really being maxed out for the Pats. We've seen this a couple of weeks in a row. This defense for New England is fantastic, uh, but this is a potential where the Jets can have some success moving the football um, on the ground as well as through the air with Darnold Backbell in the backfield. Uh, I think the Patriots, uh, their numbers a little bit inflated. They've been overachieving to a big extent, so it certainly tapers uh, that schedule to an extent. Uh, But this is a defense uh, I still think is number one in the NFL, but um, these numbers are not nearly as good as they look. 
And I think we see a bit of regression here for the Pats on Monday. Don't know if the Jets have a chance to win this one outright, uh, but I think the point spread certainly in play for New York. And I think the total a little bit short at 43 and a half. There we go. We've covered all the games for week seven. So now all we can do is sit back and watch the action unfold. Of course, it wouldn't be half the podcast it is if we didn't have your help, Adam. So thanks again for coming on, sharing some insight for those matchups. No, looking forward to what's a quieter week seven, but nonetheless, uh, a number of opportunities out there on the cards. So looking forward to the games. There we go. And thanks again to everyone for listening. If you want to check out the latest NFL odds, then head to pinnacle.com. Good luck with your bets and remember to please gamble responsibly. 